0: From the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast, this is U.S. Farm Report.
1: Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Relentless heat, even for July.
2: As we head through this week, it doesn't really
1: look like a lot
2: of areas are gonna get a break from the heat.
1: The forecasts and the commodity market movements really don't seem to match up.
2: The heat
3: actually uh, here in Iowa in a lot of the areas is benefiting the crop.
1: An annual battle against pests.
4: You can have a hundred completely lose a field, Southwestern corn boil
5: really bad.
1: We hit the field of Arkansas to see what pests could be heading to the Midwest next. An unspoken truth about pests. And in John's world,
6: where the wind blows.
1: Now for the news, dangerous heat is continuing to impact a large portion of the nation and a lack of rain in areas of farm country is just adding to the concern. Now without enough moisture, crops are withering in this high heat and the heat is hitting at a key time. USDA reporting 37% of the crop is now silking stage for corn across the US. In Arkansas, 95% of the corn is in the silking phase, with 62% of the crop rated good to excellent right now. But topsoil moisture supplies were 65% very short, and temperatures this week were up in the triple digits in some parts of the state.
6: In some instances in past years, we've had some pollination issues in so that we always see or typically see pollination issues where we get high high temperatures combined with lack of water and you know we've got that right now so if you drive around the countryside you see every well running and so you know from a management standpoint trying to keep everything irrigated up is really the key
1: Russian and Ukrainian officials have signed deals to end a standoff over grain exports brought on by the war in Ukraine. Ukraine is one of the world's key breadbaskets, but a Russian blockade of its ports has threatened food security around the world. The two countries are signing separate agreements with Turkey and the United Nations. It hopes Ukraine will soon be able to export 22 million tons of grain and other ag products stuck in Black Sea ports by the war. It was thought that President Biden would formally declare a climate emergency this week after influential Democratic Senator Joe Manchin squashed his hopes for sweeping legislation to address climate issues. Instead, the president announced more modest steps during a speech at a former coal-powered plant in Massachusetts. The president said he would use his executive powers to turn concern about a climate emergency into, quote, formal official government actions, end quote. The announcement includes new funding for community cooling centers and a push for new offshore wind projects in the Gulf of Mexico. And the president said more action is to come. Well, something that is starting to cool down a bit, fertilizer prices. Prices have dropped substantially from the March records as demand for product has started to pull back. Now compared to March, urea prices in the New Orleans market topped out at $935 per ton and are currently in the lower $500 range. Phosphate is down from 1,000 to between $750 to $800 per ton, while potash has dropped to $150 to $200 from its highs. So will those trends continue? One fertilizer expert tells us that it's very hard to. Predict because of all the geopolitical unknowns.
7: The problem is for each one of the major ones, nitrogen, phosphate, and potash, there are major global factors at play that even if it was fundamental, it'd be hard enough to call on its own. But a lot of these factors. Are government driven or their products outside the realm of the fertilizer world?
1: Now, Lenville says the 2022 fertilizer market is setting up similar to 2008 when prices fell in conjunction with corn prices. Fertilizer price trends are also still riding on the war and whether Russia will be able to supply natural gas to Europe for nitrogen production and if Lithuania allows Belarus to export potash. <laughs> Also helping prices, the U.S. International Trade Commission ruled against imposing steep tariffs on urea ammonium nitrate fertilizers imported from Russia and Trinidad and Tobago. They voted the U.S. domestic producers are not injured by imports of UAN products. The finding will end import duties of up to 123 percent on Russia and 112 percent on Trinidad and Tobago. THOSE TWO MARKETS ACCOUNT FOR NEARLY 80% OF TYPICAL U.S. IMPORTS. THE NATIONAL CORN GROWERS ASSOCIATION CAME OUT STRONGLY AGAINST THE tariffs. WHILE PROBLEMS REMAIN OVERSEAS IN EUROPE WITH NORWEGIAN FERTILIZER MAKER YARA WARNING THERE COULD BE SHORTAGES OF NITROGEN-BASED FERTILIZERS DUE TO HIGHER GAS PRICES. FERTILIZERS REQUIRE A LOT OF ENERGY TO BE PRODUCED AND IT DELIVERS product THROUGHOUT EUROPE, NORTH AMERICA, AFRICA AND ASIA. A new report says the U.S. is losing farmland at what it calls an alarming rate. The study was conducted by the American Farmland Trust. It's raising the alarm about the amount of farmland being converted to development. It says between 2001 and 2016, over 11 million acres of farmland were converted to other uses. It adds up to 2,000 acres every day. Researchers saying if the pace keeps up, another 18.4 million acres will be lost by 2040. All right, that's it for the news. Well, the weather making news this week, specifically that high heat that crept into the western Corn Belt and the plains. So how long does it last? We'll check in with meteorologist Matt Yurasavik next.
0: U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Enzone from Farm Shop MFG, which allows you to rehydrate your soybeans from 10 to 13 percent. On a 20,000 bushel bin, that's an extra semi-load added to your bottom line. Order your Endzone fan by July 31st and get $200 off.
1: Now for a check of weather with meteorologist Matt Urasavik from our South Bend studios. Matt, this heat wave west of the Mississippi has been relentless this week. We had triple-digit heat here in Kansas City, but consecutive days of temps above even 110 degrees in some areas with no rain. So will those areas get a break from that extreme heat anytime soon?
2: Yeah, Tyne, and as we head through this week, it doesn't really look like... A lot of areas are going to get a break from the heat. Maybe a little bit more rain, though, coming along with this, especially for parts of the Corn Belt. But it's really needed because things there in the Corn Belt really starting to dry out. Parts of the uh, Great Lakes back into the Midwest really, really starting to dry out, especially, again, in parts of Nebraska and South Dakota. Things have gotten a little bit worse down in the uh, Mid-South here. We've got Arkansas, Southern Missouri, starting to see that severe drought really start to kick in. And then parts of North Northern Texas, again, seeing that drought expand, get a little bit worse, and the same thing goes for parts of the West Coast, California, the San Joaquin Valley, very important growing region, still looking at uh, extremely dry conditions back there, extreme to exceptional drought conditions there and all the way through most of Nevada and Utah so extremely dry back there in the West and you can see a lot of this red right here very dry soil through Texas Oklahoma Kansas Nebraska and all the way back through the Four Corners region and to the west where we did see some rain though right here in the middle part of the country parts of the Ohio Valley up into Michigan and Indiana dealing with some of that very wet soil but things continue to dry out although The look of the jet stream, still very warm, very humid in the middle of the country, hot and dry back in the west. But those scattered showers and storms back in the four corners, that's not going anywhere. And you actually look at the end of this week, see this dip in the jet stream starting to move on down. Could give a little bit of relief from the heat and humidity there. Great Lakes up into the upper Midwest. Also bring more chances of rain as it looks like this ridge kind of splits in two. So that's something we'll continue to keep an eye on through this week. But here's a look at Monday. A lot of heat here in the west, but still dealing with these scattered showers and thunderstorms. Right through the middle of the country as well and then afternoon scattered storms back in the west, some of which could be on the heavier side. Here's a look at Wednesday. Still a system moving through the upper Midwest, bringing some rain and a few thunderstorms, and then those hot thunderstorms there in the afternoons in the south, dealing with those pretty much all week, and then back in the southwest, dealing with more of the heavier thunderstorms during the afternoon. That continues into Friday. Things stay hot and dry there Otherwise, and then off to the east, still staying warm and humid with more of those thunderstorms all the way from the golf course up. Uh, Gulf Coast up into parts of New England as well. So that's what we're going to be keeping an eye on. Temperatures, though, normal across northern parts of the Corn Belt, much above average on the West Coast, and then all the way down through the Gulf and up the East Coast. Very warm as we head through this week. And again, rain right through the middle of the country, above normal all the way from Southern California and all the way up into parts of the Mid-Atlantic. So that will be good news for us. But taking a look ahead toward next week, still extremely warm for most of the country, and more rain could be expected as well. And we'll continue to track that right here, and we'll bring that to you next week. Tyne,
1: back to you. Well, as you just heard from Matt, that forecast looks far from perfect. So why didn't the commodity markets react? Brian Grady and Andrew Jackson join me for our marketing roundtables next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Brian Grady, as well as Andrew Jackson, joining us this weekend. Brian, the main question right now that I'm hearing from a lot of farmers, especially in that western Corn Belt, is this heat, this dryness that that we have this week, this forecast, that the grain markets don't really reflect what the forecast is is showing. What is your answer to that?
3: Well, I think the heat, actually, uh, here in Iowa, um, where we have plentiful moisture and soil moisture in a lot of the areas, is benefiting the crop. Now, the areas in, in northwestern part of the state, uh, southwestern part of the state, where it's drier, uh, they're, they're going to see some of their crop hurt, I think. But uh, what I've seen of, of the state, and I've seen quite a bit of it uh, the past several weeks, is that we have a really big crop here in Iowa. The Illinois crop, uh, you know, it, there were areas that were a concern, and it's really coming along in the last three weeks. So we're looking at the central corn belt, the number one and number two producing states of Iowa and Illinois, uh, that are looking at very big crops right now. And, and so that's going to probably offset some of those lost bushels in some of the other areas uh, out to the western and, and southern part of the uh, Corn Belt.
1: Yeah, and we'll get into that a little bit more, especially as you get ready to, to set off on that pro-farmer Midwest crop tour. But, Andrew, as you look right now at the, the action of the markets this past week, is it the fact that Iowa and Illinois and some of those key states did get rain, or is it truly this fund action and this fund liquidation that is the overarching theme of these markets right now?
8: Well, I think that uh, the funds certainly, the fund certainly could shed a lot more and could do a lot more damage to this market. But one thing you've got to ask yourself is how far do they want to push the market below six bucks, below thirteen bucks, you know, or below eight dollar wheat uh, with the balance sheets as tight as it is. So. You know, the, I think right now the trade is probably looking at a 175 to 177 type yield, and that probably leaves us in an okay position. Um, but it still leaves us with some risk if we do pull that crop down into the lower 170s on, on corn specifically. It's a little early to start guesstimating what the bean crop might be. Um, but it's hard for me to believe also that, uh, and I think the trade believes this as well, that you know, we're going to see a corn crop below you know, below 170 this year. Uh, unless we have some really disastrous weather late, uh, I think the funds are probably uh, and fundamental traders are probably looking and saying, listen, we, we're probably going to be OK in the U.S. It's probably not going to be a bumper crop. It may not be a 180 crop, uh, but maybe we've got enough uh, gas in the tank to limp on in through the U.S. crop and then start thinking about record planted acreage and uh, record planted acreage in South America.
1: Yeah, so Brian, as you mentioned, you know, I know you've been really looking into this crop. I know recently you took a drive to, to, to get an idea, especially for Iowa's crop. But this heat and this dry weather, we are losing some bushels. But you think we are gaining more bushels than we're losing at this point?
3: Uh, I would say that, you know, just based on where the crop condition ratings are here in mid-July, and I, and I know that that isn't a direct correlation to final yields, but it does tell us something, and, and that's the health of the crop, that um, we have potential to get to a record yield nationally. Now, everything probably has to fall in place, and we know that the long-term forecast that uh, the National Weather Service just came out with this week uh, signals that it's going to be hot and it's going to be dry for a good portion of that uh, the growing uh, area in the Corn Belt, especially uh, the western and southwestern areas. Uh, kind of a, a mixed picture in terms when we get into the eastern belt. So we're going to need some time of the rains here, no doubt about that. But I can tell you that that Iowa is very good right now. That doesn't mean that there aren't some problem areas, but Iowa is very good. And Illinois has come a long ways here in the, the past several weeks. And when you got the number one and number two corn-producing states in the United States uh, ripping along like they are at the moment, um, you can offset quite a bit of ill in, in some of those other states.
1: Andrew, you know, you're in Kentucky. I know Kentucky and some of those other areas did get a rain last week. Definitely welcome news for some of those Kentucky farmers. Did it save the crop?
8: Uh, Part of the crop, it was certainly a million-dollar rain, million-dollar rain plus. Uh, There's a central part of the central western part of the state that's been in pretty decent shape all season long, but uh, up along the Ohio River has struggled at times. Southern Kentucky into Tennessee has really struggled, especially the early planted crops. Uh, Overall, this last rain really helped the later planted crop, and it's really a good thing we probably didn't get planted real timely this year. Um, So those rains have definitely helped.
1: So when you look at some of these truck bids and, and, and this basis that we've been talking about, what is it telling us right now? We're going to ask both Brian and Andrew later on U.S. Farm Report. Overall, it's been a windy year across the country, and data shows some areas were windier than average. So what does this mean for energy? Here's John Phipps.
6: I had intended to talk about tariffs this week, but being easily distracted, this beautiful graphic from visual Capitalist grabbed my attention. Now, I knew that the West, and especially the Southern Plains, had high average wind speeds, but I was unaware. The Midwest was an equally good place to site wind turbines as well, especially the newer, bigger ones. Suddenly, all those turbines and cornfields made a little more sense to me. Looking at the map, it also became clear that the place to build turbines for the highly populated coastal urban centers is offshore. Recent news showing Texas struggling with a heat wave in part due to lower wind-generated power was unsurprising, given that it is the largest wind energy state. What did surprise me was the discovery Iowa obtains the majority of its electricity from wind. Across the nation, wind now supplies 10% of all electrical power, but there are 10 states, mostly in the southeast, that generate none, for good reason, looking at this wind speed map again. The battle against wind farm construction in farm country will doubtless continue. But the end of federal construction subsidies may slow expansion of this power source in the coming years. Now, these predictions should be taken skeptically, since not only is turbine cost per unit of power continuing to drop, but the political winds can shift as well, to make a pun. Maps and graphics like this reinforce what energy experts have been trying to tell us for decades. The potential for wind energy is real, but our embarrassingly out-of-date electrical grid, inefficient state regulations, and slow acceptance of this energy source are unnecessary impediments to increasing this cheaper, cleaner source of electricity. EV critics are right about the shift away from internal combustion engines requiring more electrical power. Wind energy looks like a partial solution to this estimated 25% demand increase, but only if we can get the power where it's needed, when it's needed. Other countries, like Australia, the EU, China, are taking the lead in finding solutions to this technical problem. And in coming weeks, I'll talk about what the power grids of the future will look like and how they are crucial, not just to lowering emissions, but making electricity more reliable and efficient for all of us.
1: Thank you, John. And don't forget, you can watch more of John's world on our Farm Journal YouTube page. That QR code is on the screen. Well, when we come back, we check in with Machinery Pete, who has tractor tails this week.
9: Hey, welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. And I got to tell you, if you love Missouri and if you love Minneapolis Moline, this segment is just for you because we're headed to the Show Me State to check out a Jet Star 3. I believe it's a 1968 uh, model, and they made those Jet Star 3s for quite some time, several years, from the mid-60s right up to the end in 69, 70, in that time period. I like the LPs. Uh, They uh, have hardly any dirty oil. Uh, The fuel is so clean and the engines last a long time, Uh, but they're like anything else. If you take good care of your gas or diesel, they're going to be just as dependable. I prefer the LP. Minneapolis Moline's known for uh, the LP tractors. Uh, The other brands, had some, but nothing like Minneapolis Moline did. About seven, eight years ago, bought it in Indiana. My wife got me involved in. Uh, she's been a collector all of her life, and I collected nothing but dust. So I saw an advertising for Minneapolis Moline toys at a flea market, and the rest is history. I went from little stuff to big stuff to all kinds of things, Minneapolis Moline. Do a lot of tractor cruising with that one, uh, just our three. Uh, it handles easy, I can haul it on my smaller trailer, and you know, it's it, it just economical.
1: Thanks, Greg. Well, still to come, last year it was an area that battled intense armyworm infestation earlier than ever. But what pest problems are popping up now? That's our Farm Journal Report, next.
0: U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report, trusted, timely tradition. Unspoken truth about pests on U.S. Farm Report, brought to you by Duracade Viptera trait stacks, guarding against 16 above and below ground corn pests like mid-season threats of corn rootworm, earworm, and western bean cutworm. Comprehensive control when it matters most.
1: Well, last year, Arkansas farmers were on the front lines of intense armyworm infestation. It started early and was devastating to crops, and then the pest marched into the Midwest. This year, the dry weather in Arkansas is causing a few problems with grasshoppers and blister beetles, but nothing like last year's infestation. So what problems are starting to pop up now, and how do planting dates play a vital role in it all? We dig into the details this week and Unspoken Truth About Pests. Matt Miles isn't your average farmer.
10: One thing we've learned on our operation is you've got to have enough equipment to hit those windows in a short period of time because the weather seems to me like it's changed over my farming career.
1: He says here in Southeast Arkansas, what typically was a 30 day window to get the corn crop in years ago is more like 10 or 20 today.
10: But we were able to hit those windows, get the crop in early, uh, ended up with a, a really good emergence.
1: But Miles isn't afraid to push the production limits.
10: We set aside a budget for research so we can take, take that portion of the money and say, okay, let's go chase something stupid. And you know, maybe blind hog finds a acorn every now and then.
1: And this year, Matt, along with his son Lane and agronomist Rob, decided to push the limits with planting dates, planting soybeans on February 17th.
10: The February bean trial we did, you know, that was a 50-50 shot, maybe a 30% shot that it was gonna work. I mean, it had two inches of snow, 10 days below freezing. Uh, took 30 days to come out of the ground and those beans look just like these. So you know we're pretty pumped about that.
1: And as an agronomist, Dedman says this area battles pests every year and planting dates are a major way to fight those pests.
5: We don't generally have a real aggressive winters that, that get rid of the, the, the insects and, and, and diseases that we fight. We we tend to want to plant as early as we can. We try to outrun them.
1: Across the state, University of Arkansas entomologist Ben Thrash says one pest problem popping up for farmers is southwestern corn borer.
4: If you've got non-BT corn and you're planting it, non-BT corn after non-BT corn year after year in the same area, yeah, that's, that's where you start running into issues with your southwestern corn borer.
1: He's noticed fields that are in non-BT the first year aren't infested as bad, but the impact in fields planted in non-BT back-to-back is actually brutal.
4: You can have 100 completely lose a field of southwestern corn borer when they're really bad.
1: And soybeans, it's the usual suspect starting to creep in, stink bugs.
4: Those stink bugs, they're seed feeders, and so that's whenever you need to start being concerned about uh, some of these stink bugs.
1: Green and brown stink bugs and soybeans are manageable, but it's a newer pest that's marched into Arkansas that has farmers on edge.
10: We get in the red band stink bugs. We've only had that one year. That's absolutely makes you want to puke. I mean, you know, because you can't, you can't control them. They come back so fast, but we've been fortunate so far this year that it's been a little lighter than what we thought it would be.
4: Part of the issue with them is their salivary enzymes are more potent. Then, with our green and brown stink bugs.
1: Thrash says it's been proven that the pest is devastating to yield.
4: Severe, very, very severe yield loss from red banded stink bug. I guarantee you could get 90% yield loss on some fields if they're really, really bad.
1: Red banded stink bugs are a tropical pest that overwinter in southern Louisiana.
4: But what we're going to have to watch out for. Is whenever Louisiana, whenever their beans start drying down, they start harvesting beans down south, that's gonna be where we may have a push for red banded stink bugs.
1: On the lookout for late season pest pressure, Miles Farms scouts using NDVI imagery, but Deadman also walks all of these fields
5: weekly. 10 years ago, I don't know that we were fighting as aggressively to protect the soybean crop as we were, you know, then as we are now. I think we understand more today what the, 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 the true damage that can be done by those pests are.
1: Scouting is another way Miles Farms plays offense in pest control.
5: You can get those infested in the fields that it'll be so, so detrimental. You won't, you won't deliver those beans. The, the meals won't take them. The, there'll be so much damage. There'll be so many insects in there. So, so to, to leave a field untreated it is probably a, a very negative ROI thought process for a farmer.
1: While pest pressure can be a problem here due to weather, not every one of these fields will see insecticide this year.
5: But one thing we
10: do is we spray when it's needed, but we don't always add insecticide to it.
1: It's a move Deadman was adamant about.
5: We're going to trigger insecticide applications or fungicide applications, depending on what pest we're battling, uh, based off of thresholds.
10: I was scared of it. I'll be honest with you. Planes flying all over. You know, my neighbors flying everywhere and we're sitting there not doing anything. And, and so, you know, it took, it took Rob proving that to me to, to, to make it work, but so far it's worked pretty good for
1: us. Miles Farms only applies insecticide when needed to help protect beneficial insects that are also lurking in these fields.
5: So just being aware of what's going on around us in our, in our geography and, and what other people are finding, that's, that's probably the biggest tool we have.
1: From the traits they plant to the management tools in season, staying ahead of potential pest problems has proven to be their best line of defense.
5: You know, you try to minimize your risk. You know, the, the safest place for this crop to be is in, the, in that grain bin. And uh, the longer it stays out here, the, the more exposure we have and the more risk of damage that we have.
1: Now, Miles says he plans to harvest that soybean field that he planted February 17th. Yet this month, a field that he really thought had a 30% chance of survival. And then he'll follow up with a 90-day corn that will harvest this fall and then go back in with winter wheat after that. If all three crops produce this year in that one field, Miles thinks it may be a first in Arkansas. Up next, it's a shortage of U.S. grain, or is it really a shortage of grain in the right spot? We'll tell you what grain bids are saying in our marketing roundtables next.
8: Your next piece of equipment is on machinerypeat.com. Search equipment from dealerships across the country to find what you're looking for. Only on MachineryPete.com.
1: Rejoining us, Brian Grady as well as Andrew Jackson. Brian, talking to some farmers and, and basis right now, and some of these cash grain bins, bids just continue to be a phenomenal, whether it be ethanol plants or, or other areas. What is that telling us at this point?
3: Well, it, it tells us that uh, the supply is, is uh, not as good as the demand. And we do have some demand concerns uh, on the export side of things for uh, old crop corn, um, you know, kind of limping into the finish line here. Ethanol production probably needs to get going a little bit here into the end of the marketing year. And and so there are some demand concerns, but yet the basis remains exceptionally strong, uh, which tells us that the supply probably isn't as much as what some think it is out there.
1: Yeah. So if the supply isn't as much, Andrew, then, you know, you look at how it kind of sets the stage, the carryover as we head into this new crop. I mean, it seems like we need a lot of extra bushels then to make up for what's possibly not there if what basis is telling us is true?
8: Yeah, a lot of that is maybe the, maybe the bushels are dislocated. Uh, I mean, they're not exactly where they need to be or the, or the timeliness isn't there. You know, there's still corn in the farmer's bin, but uh, that doesn't do the feed mill any good. So with the recent sell-off we've seen in futures, you know, the basis has to do the work. Um, looking into the mid-south, you know, southern, uh, you know, southern top feed markets, uh, you know, think about it like this. And I know there's some noise from the, from the July Sept roll. But if a feed mill was paying uh, nine dollars for cash corn just uh, just a couple months ago, um, when futures were seven fifty, and today, you know, futures are six dollars. But hey, they still got to have corn. So does nine dollars really hurt that much? Yeah, it, it's historically a very high number. But this sell off in the futures and the roll to the July at the at the huge spread at the huge inverse that we went off at has really given basis room to run.
1: And last weekend on the show, Brian, we talked about you know train troubles and just the transportation issues and and the issues getting feed out west and even the issues in the, in the southeast. So when you look at some of those transportation problems, is that possibly causing some of that grain to be in areas uh, that that it shouldn't be at this point?
3: Absolutely. I, I think Andrew hit the the nail on the head right there um, when he he said just you know it isn't necessarily in position. Uh, and when you get that, then you get the the imbalances or the the crazy type of action that we're seeing in the basis and those types of things. So I I think that definitely has something to do with it. Uh, Just the the infrastructure and the ability to get uh, the bushels from where we need them, uh, or from where they're located to where we need them, is a big portion of of this uh, basis play.
1: When you look at the situation that's happening in Ukraine and we continue to see how it's going to play out, discussions are starting back up, can we get that grain indeed out of Ukraine? How does that continue, Brian, to shift this world supply and ultimately the demand for grain here in the U.S.
3: Well, everything's in balance because of the situation in, in Ukraine. And, and, you know, even if they do get a deal and we start the uh, the, the resumption of exports coming out of Ukrainian ports, uh, it, it probably isn't going to be anywhere near normal, to be honest with you. Some of that grain's already been in all likelihood stolen by Russia and already shipped around uh, the world uh, to their benefit. Um, so. You know, the numbers that are being thrown out there in terms of of what's available from Ukraine probably aren't the reality of the situation. And just because we get a signed deal uh, doesn't mean that it's going to be a normal situation anytime soon. And so what you're looking at is something sub prime and and, uh, we aren't going to see the logistics issues or the global supply issues. Uh, abate anytime soon in my opinion.
1: The seasonals of the market, the psychology of the market right now, what is your advice for farmers who are really weighing what they should be doing at this point when it comes to pricing this new crop?
8: We've already sold off corn below $6. bucks. we have already sold beans down to near the $13 level for new crop. We've already got wheat down around $8. And those are all historically very high levels, but you know, we're also at historically low levels on carryout. Um, so you know, at some point you got to ask yourself, how comfortable do the funds or whoever you know feel selling, uh, you know, selling beyond below this? What you know, I hate to use the word new plateau, but this plateau that we're currently on is—is is it time to go below that yet? My opinion is, until you get better, new, until you get a little further along and know either know that the U.S. crop is a monster, or know that uh, you know South American acreage is going to be big, and hey, we're also getting it in the ground. We got good weather to start. Uh, I, I'm. I would be cautious about selling below uh, crop insurance prices.
1: Thank you so much for your insight this weekend. We need to take a quick break, and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. Well, after hitting over $5 on June 14th, the national average for a gallon of gas has fallen more than 50 cents. Diesel prices remain above the $5 mark, and its soaring diesel fuel prices having a major domino effect on the economy, as reporter Ryan Young says, truck drivers are now in the unique position of spotting economic headwinds early.
7: Just off I 80 in Iowa, it's hard to miss. Part festival, part convention, part job fair. It's the largest gathering of American truck drivers in the country. Drivers here telling us they are facing challenge after challenge from loss of friends to COVID to supply chain shortages to higher and higher fuel prices yet they continue to deliver for the American consumer.
1: It's been tough, especially now with the the fuel prices the way they are.
7: Diesel prices have risen more than 50% so far this year.
3: You know, you can't uh, expect
10: the people and keep paying and
3: paying and paying. They're going to run out of money eventually. Then what are you going to do?
7: Prices are going up across the board, and many truckers here said orders are getting canceled and demand is slowing. For some, the outlook for the next few months is grim.
10: I think there's a fear out there that that is
8: being placed. we got to figure out a way to, to get these fuel prices back and, and, and get back to business.
7: And the economic impact of these big rigs is tremendous. You think about almost 72% of all goods in this country are moved by truck, and that has a real ripple effect. You're talking about $12.7 trillion of goods moved throughout this country by truck
9: alone. I can't say I can blame one person for it all.
7: Bill Abbott owns a farm and <laughs> travels across the country with his vintage truck to shows like this one. He believes change is needed.
0: It takes a leader that can
9: grab the bull by the horns, but the economy is such now, we need a, a leader that's going to grab the bull by the balls. I've never seen anything like it. Before, I've used to my savings. I made money. We went on trips and I didn't spend much. Now, I'm spending a lot, and I'm losing back all, all my savings.
7: There's also a can-do attitude that reverberates all around here. Just keep right on going. Terry and Adam Wurzer own a small company that makes products for semi-trucks, and they say there's no choice but to push through the tough times.
8: People, especially around here, they, you know, just just because times get tough, they still work hard, and they still fight their way out of the hole, and they keep going.
7: The Biden administration says it sees and hears the plight of truckers and is aware of the driver shortage. It plans to help make it easier for those wanting to get their commercial driver's license while also hoping to address concerns ranging from poor road conditions to wait times at delivery points. For some, they say that can't happen
9: soon enough. The other administration wasn't like this. Was that a false economy?
1: Now, I think maybe this is. Hopefully things will cycle out. Don't know. Thanks, Ryan. And as we reported earlier this year, American Trucking Association actually says the U.S. was 80,000 drivers short last year, which is an all-time high. And they project that could double by 2030. All right, up next, speaking of labor, are small towns being hit the hardest? Customer support is next.
6: The great worker hunt.
8: Registration is open for the 2022 Pro Farmer Crop Tour. Join our team as we gain insight on the 2022 growing season in person or online. Visit profarmercroptour.com forward register to select the stop nearest you. Well,
1: for more than a year now, help wanted and now hiring signs have been plastered along highways and businesses really across the U.S. So where is all the labor and what does it mean for small businesses in small towns here's john phipps
6: from scott emick in st peter minnesota in rural america every 40 miles or so there is a manufacturing plant for a national business how are the small independent businesses that are grain elevators welding shops independent seed dealers local co-ops etc going to continue to be able to find labor at wages they can pay. There's going to be a big discrepancy between national businesses and locals in the pay scale. I fear even more for the small town Main Street. This is a great question, Scott. Like you, I see evidence of this all over my county. We have some light manufacturing in the single town of size, about 9,000, and everyone has a sign out about hiring. Some fast food outlets are not opening the dining rooms due to lack of personnel. Finding help is also a constant gripe among farmers. But this is not so much about being rural, but rather being at full employment. While economists bicker about the definition of full employment, at 3.6%, we can't be far away. The idea there is a pool of slackers sitting and drawing government aid is inaccurate at best. At worst, this pool is no bigger than it ever was. Labor force participation is 82.6%, the best since 19. Total employment is 158 million, the same as it was before the pandemic. Meanwhile, real wages which have been adjusted for inflation, continue to drop, suggesting there is no compelling demand for labor, rather just cheap labor. Rural employment faces some unique issues, however. While wages are generally lower than in cities, the cost of living is significantly lower as well, primarily due to housing. Rural America continues to lose population faster than urban areas and the worker pool is not just smaller but older and less educated. Growth in largely rural states has been almost exclusively on the fringes of growing urban centers. Working in the city and living in the country is a good economic strategy for all kinds of workers, which shrinks the pool for truly rural employers. Add in automation, like restaurants going uh, from waitstaff to kiosks or all carryout, online retailing, and less immigration of all kinds, and rural employers face a stiff challenge. Of course, there is a wage level that will attract those workers, but for too many small firms, they cannot operate with such labor costs.
1: Thanks, John. And last week's customer support, it also drew a lot of interest. To watch that and all of John's commentaries on our YouTube page, just use that QR code on your screen. All right, when we come back, how the heat and dryness is actually taking its toll on farms. From the Farm is next. Well, the heat this week torched some of the crop in the Western Corn Belt, and it also whittled away at pastures trying to hang on. For those in the plains and the west, the weather is making matters worse. Last week, it was mile-long lines at this Texas livestock auction. This week, it's photos from southwest Kansas showing the impact triple-digit heat and no rain will have on a crop. With each
4: day of Triple-digit heat continuing to add insult to injury.
1: While July is supposed to be hot, it's the extreme temperatures and no rain that's causing concern in areas like Texas and parts of the plains.
4: We'll continue to see these not only triple-digit triple heat numbers, but lots and lots of daily record highs, maybe even a few monthly or all-time records possibly being set across the Great Plains before we get out of this. And, And there's really no end in sight.
1: Well, next week on the road, we'll actually travel to a part of Texas where the drought is worse than 2011 and the concerns that it's creating about not only infrastructure, but farmers' mental health. That will be next weekend on U.S. Farm Report. That does it for this weekend. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to join us next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone.
0: U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.